Chapter 20, The Resurrection of the Dead The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the general resurrection is basic to the creeds and the apostolic witness. St. Paul stated the issue bluntly. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 16-21 The attitude of many persons is that Christianity, by placing faith and religion on so material a basis as the resurrection, is guilty of a materialistic and self-serving perspective. It is held that true religion should require nobility for the sake of nobility, without any other reward than the satisfaction of being what one is. But this attitude is itself the epitome of sin, in that it enthrones moral autonomy as the essence of the true life. Man, as his own God, content with his autonomy, needs no reward other than the satisfaction of being himself. Biblical religion calls for obedience to God and promises rewards for obedience and curses for disobedience. The doctrine of the resurrection is basic to the biblical order of rewards, but it is also central to the doctrine of creation and redemption. Since Tertullian is often accused of having a negative attitude towards the body and of showing strongly ascetic traits, it is instructive to examine Tertullian's writings in order to assess the Christian doctrine of the resurrection and its implications. First of all, Tertullian made it clear that there is no true Christianity without the doctrine of the resurrection. He, therefore, will not be a Christian who shall deny this doctrine, which is confessed by Christians. The doctrine is alien, Tertullian held, to paganism, but the resurrection of the dead is the Christian's trust. Second, the doctrine of the resurrection is the logical conclusion to the doctrine of creation. For paganism, morality, and therefore the flesh, is an ugly fact. Both heretic and heathen, however much they profess to be more congenial to life than the orthodox, hate the body. Is not their burden from beginning and everywhere an invective against the flesh, against its origin, against its substance, against the casualties and the invariable end which await it? unclean from its first formation of the dregs of the ground, uncleaner afterwards from the mire of its own seminal transmissions, worthless, weak, covered with guilt, laden with misery, full of trouble, and after all this record of its degradation, dropping into its original earth and the appellation of a corpse, and destined to dwindle away even from this loathsome name into none henceforth at all, into the very death of all designation. For the pagans, life was haunted by an eternal recurrence, by change and decay in an unending and meaningless cycle. For them, the horror of flesh was its inevitable decay. Flesh was thus a kind of trap for humanity. Very early Greek thought also turned to the transmigration of souls, as with Pythagoras. It was held by some that on account of this, they should even abstain from eating animal food. May anyone have the persuasion that he should abstain, lest by chance in his beef he eat some ancestor of his. 
All these absurd opinions are given intellectual respectability. But if a Christian promises the return of a man from a man, and the very actual Gaius from Gaius, the cry of the people will be to have him stoned. They will not even so much as grant him a hearing. This point is a significant one. The world of antiquity committed to humanism tolerated any absurdity concerning the future life, but rejected without a hearing often, or with demands that the preacher be killed, the doctrine of the resurrection. The answer is obvious. Every one of these other beliefs, i.e. the immorality of the soul, reincarnation or transmigration, etc., all affirm the basic divinity of man and his self-salvation. The biblical doctrine made man a creature and God sovereign. It placed man's total life under a total God, and this was and is the offense of the doctrine of the resurrection. The immortality of the soul in its every form is a doctrine which makes man his own God and Savior. It gives man an open universe, i.e. free from God, which is man's to explore in time and eternity. God, having created all things for his glory, does not allow sin and the fall to frustrate his purpose. Therefore, Tertullian said, all creation is instinct with renewal. God's purpose is the restoration and fulfillment of all things. The whole, therefore, of this revolving order of things bears witness to the resurrection of the dead. Third, not only is man's destiny the resurrection and the glory of eternal life, but his present life in the body is not to be falsely understood. Man is the sinner, not the body. We maintain, moreover, that what has been abolished in Christ is not carnem peccati, sinful flesh, but peccartem carnis, sin in the flesh, not the material thing, but its condition, not the substance, but its flaw. And this we aver on the authority of the apostle who says he abolished sin in the flesh. Moreover, Tertullian pointed out, it is the works of the flesh, not the substance of the flesh, which St. Paul always condemns. Man indeed was made of the dust or clay of the earth. It was man, clay, upon whom God breathed to make a living soul. I wish to impress this on your attention, with a view to your knowing that whatever God has at all purposed or promised to man is due not to the soul simply, but to the flesh also if not arising out of any continuity in their origin, yet at all events by the privilege possessed by the latter in its name. God obliterated the clay in man and absorbed it into flesh. The clay became another substance, flesh. To speak of the body as dirt and therefore contemptible is to dishonor it. The body must be viewed in terms of what God made it in creation and makes it in the resurrection. There is no shame in earth, but things must be seen in their true perspective. The body in its first creation was destined to be a vehicle for the glory of God the Son. Thus, that clay which was even then putting on the image of Christ, who was to come in the flesh, was not only the work, but also the pledge and surety of God. To what purpose is it to brandy about the name earth as that of a sordid and groveling element, with the view of tarnishing the origin of the flesh, when even if any other material had been available for forming man, it would be requisite that the dignity of the maker should be taken into consideration, 
who even by his selection of his material deemed it, and by his management made it worthy. The privilege has been granted to the flesh to be nobler than its origin, and to have its happiness aggrandized by the change wrought in it. Now even gold is earth because of the earth, but it remains earth no longer after it becomes gold, but is a far different substance, more splendid and more noble, though coming from a source which is comparatively faded and obscure. In like manner, it was quite allowable for God that he should clear the gold of our flesh from all the taints, as you deem them, of its native clay by purging the original substance of its dross. The gold of our flesh? This certainly is strong praise of the body, and it represents an important element of the teaching of the early church. The Greco-Roman view was hostile to the body. It saw the world in terms of the dialectic of form and matter, form or ideas being the higher, truer substance, and matter being the baser substance or being. There was no delight in or respect for the body in classical culture. There was a delight, rather, in the pleasures of the body combined with a disrespect for the body itself. As a result, this Hellenistic view lent itself readily to either total license or radical asceticism. It was this Hellenic influence which introduced asceticism into the early church. Asceticism had no roots in either the Old or New Testaments, although misinterpreted texts were used to justify it. The pagan depreciation of the body or matter led to two consequences. First, it led, on the one hand, to asceticism, to attempts to transcend the body by a denial of it. Second, it led to flagrant amoralism and license. The body was a sub-moral concern, and therefore not within the province of ethics. The body was denied by a studied moral indifference to acts of the body, so that immorality became an ascetic way, a means of renouncing the body. Both forms of paganism continue in the modern world, although the second is especially prominent in the 20th century. The pagan hatred of change was also a form of asceticism, and it is present in virtually all anti-Christianity. The hatred of change leads to attempts to stop change, to stop history, and to create an end-of-history civilization, a final order which will end mutably and give man an unchanging world. Part of this order involves also the scientific efforts to abolish death. This hatred of change is a hatred of creation and of its movement in terms of God's purpose. Unlike the pagan and the humanistic, the orthodox Christian is committed to a respect for creation. This respect for creation gave roots to science in the Christian West. It is not an accident of history that science in other cultures has had a limited growth and a quick withering. Both the fact of God's eternal decree, undergirding all creation with law, and the fact of the resurrection, giving dignity and importance to the physical universe, made an interest in the universe and the development of science inevitable. The pagan perspective is one of fundamental disrespect for creation, for the universe. The central problems for the Hellenic mind were change and decay, and wherever Neoplatonism Neoplatonism and Aristotelianism influenced the church, this emphasis returned. For the Christian who holds to a biblical faith, change and decay are not the problems, sin is, and death is the consequence of sin. Thus, when the hymn writer Henry F. Light, 1793-1847, wrote in Abide With Me, Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. He was showing a Hellenic influence.
when men began to mourn over mutability, they mourned as Greeks, not as Christians, because to the Christian, mutability brings on God's predestined purpose. Isaiah met the complaint over mutability, all flesh is grass, head on, affirming it in the context of God's omnipotence and eternal decree. Isaiah 40, 6-31 the biblical affirmation of the doctrine of the resurrection, as summed up by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 16-21, makes clear several facts basic to the faith. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is inseparably linked to the resurrection of all believers. Second, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain, and we are miserable men. We are not autonomous, and it is the epitome of insanity to imagine that our destiny and salvation is in our hands. Third, Jesus Christ, as very man of very man, has opened up for his church, his members, the glorious destiny that is theirs. This means a redeemed life and time, with the curse removed from the body and soul, love and labor to the extent that we are sanctified. It means, moreover, that the glory of the general resurrection and the perfection of physical life in the resurrection body and with everlasting life. Man's destiny is to be a creature under God, not to escape creaturehood. Those who rebel against the doctrine of the resurrection are in rebellion against creaturehood. Those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ rejoice in creaturehood under God, and life in the flesh is for them a blessed one, and the prospects of the resurrection a glorious one. It is therefore basic to creedalism to affirm, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, or as the Nicene Creed even more triumphantly declares, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is the Christian faith, the resurrection. Pagan antiquity, as well as primitive cultures, hold to a belief in a supernatural, immoral soul. Whether in its Hellenic form or as animism, this view is alien to the biblical perspective. Immortality is ascribed in Scripture to God alone. St. Paul declares that God only hath immortality, 1 Timothy 6.16, compare 1.17. And when the word is applied to man in 1 Corinthians 15.53-54, it is not declared to be a natural condition of man, but a miracle of grace. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Immortality is seen by Paul not as a condition of man, but as an aspect of Christ's grace to the sanctified. Romans 2, 6 and 7. It is Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10. These are the only verses in the Bible using the words immortal. 1 Timothy 1.17. And immortality, Romans 2.7, 1 Corinthians 15.53-54. 1 Timothy 6.16, 2 Timothy 1.10. The Hellenic perspective saw the soul as immortal, basically divine, and in essence under restraint, because its mixture with the earth of the body. In Neoplatonism, this body was viewed as the prison of the soul, which the soul had a positive duty to renounce and tra transcend. Whenever and wherever the soul is seen as another substance than the body, then contempt of the body is inevitable. The body, as a lower substance, is a baser element, and the soul either actually or potentially divine. But this perspective, which has extensively polluted the church and influenced many of the church fathers, Tertullian included, is not biblical. It is hostile to a respect for the body, although conductive to license. Greek culture was congenial to license, but hostile to true materialism.
For the Bible, body and soul are alike created by God, alike fallen, depraved, and reprobate in Adam, alike redeemed in Christ, and to be regarded as God's gifts and destiny for man. Both body and soul are alike to put on immortality and enjoy the glories of the resurrection. Both body and soul are therefore to be treated with respect as God's creation and blessing, wonderful now and glorious in the world to come. The assured faith of the Nicene Creed affirms, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.